Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor of physical medicine and rehabilitation talks about the brain fog some patients struggle with weeks and months after COVID. People who have brain fog, they talk about a lack of clarity, mental clarity. They have difficulty focusing. They feel forgetful. And some people even talk about uh, confusion. And a patient joins her doctor to share her story about discovering breast cancer during her pregnancy. About one in 3,000 births is, are associated with um, breast cancer diagnosis in mom, which sounds rare and it is, but if you're that one, you're that one and that's your everything. All that and a visit from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a pediatric nurse practitioner was pregnant when she learned she had breast cancer. We'll hear from her and the doctor who helped her and her baby through the medical crisis. But first, We'll explore how doctors are helping patients who survive COVID, but then struggle with brain fog and other lingering symptoms. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Some of the people who recover from a COVID-19 infection continue to deal with side effects for weeks or months after. Dr. Claudine Ward takes care of some of these patients with what has been called long COVID, and she's my guest today. Dr. Ward is an Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. Thank you so much for making time for this interview, Dr. Ward. Thank you. Is there a formal definition of long COVID? That's a great question. There, there is no uh, universal consensus in terms of what long COVID is. In fact, you'll see a lot of terminology that is used interchangeably uh, with long COVID, such as post COVID-19 syndrome, uh, COVID, uh, chronic COVID syndrome, and there's even something called PASC or post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2 infection. So that's quite a mouthful. But it is really important that we standardize the definition if we want to provide adequate service provision and care. So some of the things on the table in terms of defining what it is, is you know, what's the time frame that we're looking at? It, are we going to consider it long COVID if a person has symptoms four, four weeks out versus four months out? How do we differentiate between a person who has fatigue syndrome versus permanent uh, organ damage? And even things like, is there a number of symptoms that, that would need to, to qualify? There are definitions out there. So just to give you one, for example, um, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence defines it as signs and symptoms that develop during or after uh, COVID-19 infection that persist more than four weeks. So are the people who have severe cases of COVID, are they more susceptible to having these lingering symptoms than someone who had a mild case? Potentially. So looking at the re research that we have thus far, there are some patterns that are emerging, but there's always an exception uh, to the rule. But it does look like the severity of the initial disease can put someone at risk for more uh, persistent symptoms. There's also um, some data to suggest that having five or more symptoms at the time of a, a person's acute illness um, may also predispose them to these to these persistent symptoms, as well as certain blood uh, markers. So things that you could see on, on the blood, women are perhaps more susceptible, as well as a person who has a history of a psychiatric diagnosis. What about children? Are they susceptible to this just like adults are? Early on, we did not think so, but yes, it does appear that they are susceptible. Wow. Now, you mentioned, you know, symptoms may go four weeks or whatever. Could, could problems linger indefinitely? Could there be permanent damage? It is too early to say whether there could be permanent damage only because the research is only going out about six months. In time, we're going to have more information on that. But if we look at the other uh, viral syndromes that we have uh, dealt with in, in the past, for example, SARS, 
or uh, severe respiratory syndrome, it looks like some of these symptoms that people are describing uh, may take months uh, to clear up. And if someone has tissue damage, it is possible that they may have permanent uh, changes and permanent symptoms. But overall, it does appear that symptoms improve. Well, can you tell us, among the patients that you and your colleagues care for in physical medicine and rehabilitation, what are the most prevalent symptoms that patients tend to be battling? Well, I think you, you know, in terms of um, if they come to see me because of my specialty, I tend to see them for more of the neurological manifestations. Um, so that would include something called brain fog, um, fatigue, even things like cognitive changes. So people may not be able to concentrate as much. They may not have a mental stamina, for example. We are seeing mood changes uh, following or in, within this long COVID um, type of, of syndrome. Sleep changes, people may have insomnia. They may not um, sleep throughout the night and they may feel uh, tired in the morning. We're also seeing a number of people who have headaches as well as changes in, in uh, taste and smell that haven't returned yet. So what you're describing, brain fog, fatigue, um, mood changes, headaches, um, collectively, can these debilitate someone where they're you know, not able to go to school or work or, or do their regular life activities? Absolutely. I mean, it does, when we talk about fatigue, you know, for, for, for a person who is, um, it had, you know, it doesn't have any other things going on. Fatigue gets better if you rest, but the fatigue that we're talking about is a tiredness that despite rest, you're not able to participate in activities of daily living, simple things like dressing, uh, bathing. They may not be able to return to work because of this fatigue or even manage their, their household. When you add other symptoms that we can see, which I'm not seeing people for, but certainly are common, like heart racing, there's a lot of people who have what's something called like breathlessness or shortness of breath. If you add that on um, to what a person is, is feeling, the, the, the price of expending energy just may be too much for that person and, and it can be debilitating taken as a whole. I've read about patients who were hospitalized with COVID, had severe cases, maybe they were on a ventilator, but they were hospitalized for weeks, and then they have to learn to walk again. And I wonder, is that because they were just lying in a hospital bed for so long, or does the virus do something to the musculoskeletal system? There are a variety of things that could cause a person to not be able to, to walk well and have to, to learn how to walk. We know that if a per, if a person is um, in bed for even a week, uh, that they can uh, develop deconditioning and even loss of of muscle mass, and that's outside of of being sick. Uh, so certainly, when a person is in the hospital for weeks, sometimes even even months, there's going to be a consequence to that. When you have what we call critical illness, so for example, someone who's been in the uh, intensive care unit, there are other entities such as what we call myopathies or neuropathies, so changes in the muscle itself, changes in the nerve um, itself that that can make it more much more difficult to to walk. Um, but we can't also forget that there, you know, with the COVID-19 infection, you can have even more, not that, not that the myopathies and neuropathies aren't serious, but people have had strokes because of COVID-19, or they've had what we call anoxic or hypoxic injuries, which means the brain doesn't get enough oxygen, and that can change the way a person walks. They may actually have weakness on one side, for example. Um, joint pain is common, muscle pain is common, so it may be hard or uncomfortable to walk. And then like we talked about before, uh, if you have the, the heart racing or the palpitations and the shortness of breath, the ex your, a person's exercise tolerance may not be, um, may not be what it needs to be uh, to walk. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Claudine Ward, who specializes in physical medicine and rehabilitation at Upstate. So let's talk about what physical medicine and rehabilitation specialists like yourself can do to help people with long COVID. What is the rehabilitation like? What does it include? Yeah, it's it's in the it's in its infancy in terms of you know what we're what we are um, 
uh, offering our, our patients who, who come to us. This is really uh, meant to, it has to be a multidisciplinary approach. So in terms of, you know, can a person go straight to exercise? What we have to do is make sure that their uh, post-acute symptoms, like their heart rate, like their breathing abilities, we need to make sure that those are managed appropriately. Um, so for example, if someone has shortness of breath, we have to know what the extent of the disease is. If, uh, if their oxygen levels are okay sitting down, and even with a little bit of, of exertion, which we can check with something called uh, pulse oximeter, um, if their oxygen levels are adequate, we could, for example, our, our therapist could help with breathing exercises with the idea of just expanding the lungs. If, however, the breathlessness is more problematic, then we would really need them to, to see a, a pulmonologist for additional testing. Likewise, with irregular heart rates, or um, if a, a pulse is going too quickly and people feel what they call palpitations, the, they probably would need an EKG or electrocardiogram. And if it's severe or it doesn't get better, uh, you would also want to send them to a cardiologist who could do additional uh, testing, but so it seems like it could be very individualized to the to the person. It's absolutely individualized. It's you know the this is one of the um, this is one of the entities that you could. You, it's not a one size uh, fits all. Well, let me ask you: if someone say was an elite athlete before they got COVID um, versus someone who wasn't in good health, maybe was a smoker, that type of thing, is the elite athlete? necessarily going to have a better time recovering or not? Not necessarily, because it does depend on the severity of, of the illness acutely, but also what they're going to find weeks out. The, the, um, the testing that may need to be done for the, the athlete uh, is probably going to be a little bit more uh, uh, complete at the beginning only because we know that at that level, at the elite level, you really are going to be straining the heart, for example. So a person who isn't going to be straining the heart on a day-to-day -day basis may not need an echocardiogram, for for example. So the so the outcome is may or may not be uh, the same, may, may or may not be different, but the the, the what we do for that patient certainly is going to be tailored to what uh, the individual individual needs. Is there advice that you find yourself giving to all these patients routinely? Yes, it's it's pace yourself. Uh, if you're having symptoms, you know, weeks out, months out, it's not going to go away likely, um, you know, overnight. So pacing themselves. Uh, cognitively pacing themselves physically is really the way to go. I'd like to get back to brain fog and the neurological things that you really um, specialize in. Do we have a full understanding of what causes this? We don't, which obviously makes treatment very difficult. They believe studies are, are looking at this and it looks like there might be dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system. So this, the system that controls involuntary actions like our heart rate, but we don't have a full understanding of why a person develops brain fog. How similar is it or how different is it um, compared to a uh, head injury or a concussion? It's strikingly similar in terms of when people are talking about uh, brain fog. So uh, in with a person who's had concussion, brain fog is a very common uh, symptom that's reported to us, you know, sometimes months out as, as well. And so people who have brain fog, they talk about a lack of clarity, mental clarity. They have difficulty focusing. They feel forgetful. And some people even talk about uh, confusion. So uh, there's not a medication to fix this, I gather, but I mean, what advice do you have? I mean, how do people relieve this brain fog? We wish there were medication. There, There isn't yet. I mean, there are medications to help with uh, fatigue, but really they, there isn't a, a medication that has been recommended for this particular um, cause of, of brain fog. We do have a new consensus statement that was uh, sent that was uh, published by the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab recently, uh, and it, it's a nice tool that is that was created by a multidisciplinary 
uh, team. And what their recommendations are uh, is to pace themselves, pace, have a person um, take time again, so not overdoing it. Uh, and we know that rest is important, but we also know that too much rest could be problematic. So there, it looks like there's a role in what we call submaximal threshold exercise or exercise that doesn't provoke uh, symptoms, exercise that we're not um, having the person get their heart rate too high. But again, we really want to make sure that there are other um, issues like the their heart rate, like their breathing, are addressed adequately before we get them into that type of program. Are you able to give a person a projection as for how long they're still going to have the brain fog? I mean, does it take weeks or months to go away, or or can you even predict that? It's very hard to predict. If someone is coming to see me in three months, four months after their acute illness and they're still having symptoms, I can say with some certainty that it's going to be at least a few more weeks. But someone who's coming a little earlier, that's hard. That's harder to predict. Will someone wake up one morning no longer feeling foggy, or is the recovery more of a gradual thing? Likely it's more gradual. It's possible that they may wake up, but I, I'm not seeing those, those patients. All right. Well, are there specific activities that you suggest people avoid if they're dealing with brain fog? Is it safe to be physical and, you know, exercise, go for your run, drive? Yeah, the, in terms of in terms of activity related to brain fog, the, if we're not talking about heart issues or lung issues, it's really a matter of what can you safely attend to. So if you're having troubles concentrating, you really don't want to do something that is dangerous. So, for example, if um, you know you, you probably don't want to be uh, exposing yourself to uh, to unprotected heights, for example, maybe ladders, if you're easily distracted and you may forget where your, your foot is in, in space. Um, driving is another uh, activity that may not be safe for a person if they really do have severe uh, brain fog. So that's one of another, uh, an, another case where working with, with a, a, their medical provider and figuring out what is safe um, for a person is really important. I've heard that when you're recovering from a concussion, you're not supposed to read or watch TV or use electronic devices. Does that also apply to someone who's got brain fog? And if so, I mean, that that really limits their ability to do a lot of things. Yes, I, I with with concussion, when a person has the, those when they have difficulty with reading or tolerating screens, they do have to limit in in. In uh, reality, though, complete, uh, completely eliminating those activities is, is impossible, especially in, in, in today's world. Uh, it, it is surprising, though, you know, you asked the question about with brain fog and is it similar to what we see with concussion? It is surprising that uh, this, uh, that people who have had uh, COVID-19 and are still having symptoms, they also talk about uh, decreased reading tolerance or sensitivity to light, even though that hasn't been um, highlighted as much in, in the literature. So, so just based on what we know from other, uh, other disease processes, other injuries, we would recommend similar types of avoidance. Well, before we wrap up, let me ask you, I mean, it seems like this recovery might be frustrating for someone. Is there a need for mental support? That's another great question. So there, in addition to fatigue, uh, changes in sleep, mental health issues ha are actually quite, uh, quite common uh, to the order of, there was a, a study in, in China uh, looking at uh, I think there were 1,700 patients, and they were able to follow these patients out for six months. And it was close to 23%, I believe, uh, that uh, that had met criteria for anxiety and depression. We also see a number of people who develop a post-traumatic stress disorder. So that does have to be part of the intake when you're seeing a, a patient, because we want to make sure that their that their mood is is uh, 
controlled, that they're not feeling particularly anxious. It's very easy for someone to say, oh, all of these symptoms are related to your anxiety, but it's much more complex than that. Uh, and we would offer, for example, counseling if we thought that was appropriate. Well, I really appreciate you making time for this interview. Thank you. My guest has been Dr. Claudine Ward, an Associate Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, what happens when breast cancer is diagnosed during pregnancy? From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cancer during pregnancy is uncommon, but when it happens, it can be a challenge to diagnose and treat. With me today to talk about this subject is Dr. Jane Charlam. She's an associate professor at Upstate who specializes in breastfeeding medicine, along with a patient of hers who happens to be a pediatric nurse practitioner at Upstate, Davia Moss. Thank you both for making time in your schedules to talk with me and also Davia for sharing such a personal story. Thank you for having us. Happy to be here. Now, Davia, I understand you were pregnant with your third child at age 34. Can you tell us how you learned you had cancer? Um, it was towards the very end of my pregnancy. Um, I think I noticed around 37 weeks, I was just taking off a sports bra and I noticed a lump or something different that hadn't been there before. So at that point in my pregnancy, I was seeing my um, OB every week and I mentioned it at my 38 week visit that I had found that um, and sort of went from there to get a biopsy and I was diagnosed four days before my son was born. Wow. How, how surprised were you to find this? I was very surprised when I felt the lump. I felt that it was probably pregnancy related, um, either a clogged duct or just some normal cystic changes in pregnancy. I was very surprised even, you know, almost two years later, I still am a little bit surprised. <laughs> what was your obstetrician's reaction? What, what did they recommend? She was incredible. She even said, you know, 99%, this is nothing to worry about, but you never want to miss the 1%. And she sent me right across the street for an ultrasound, you know, during that appointment. Uh, I've met many friends through sort of the young breast cancer world that their OB did not respond that way. And unfortunately, their diagnosis was delayed as a result of that. She was really incredible um, and didn't wasn't an alarmist, but just said, you know, let's just get this taken care of. We don't you know, we don't want to miss anything and you're about to have a baby. Let's just sort of get this out of the way. So how so, did you end up connecting with Dr. Charlam? So when I was diagnosed, I um, I was I initially had a fine needle aspirate on a Thursday and then I had to have the biopsy on a Friday. Um, so on Friday evening, um, my OB called and said, you know, the, the breast surgeon has said that you cannot even latch the baby. Um, and I breastfed my first two children until they were two years old, both of them. So breastfeeding has always been a huge passion of mine. Um, even when I was still a bedside nurse, I always wanted to help guide you know, new mothers through that difficult time of nursing their newborns. So it's just always been something that's very important to me. Um, when my OB told me that the surgeon said that, I told her that that may be what the surgeon thinks, but I'm going to do my own research and see what's really appropriate here because I know that my breast milk is going to come in no matter what. And we didn't at the time didn't even have my full pathology back. So we didn't even know what the plan was going to be for treatment at that point. So I had um, a couple years earlier heard Dr. Charlam give a grand rounds, a pediatric grand rounds. And I also knew her through the lactation committee at Upstate. So through a mutual friend that was on that committee, we were put in touch. Um, Dr. Charlin was out of town, but called me, she called me from Boston the next day. And that was sort of the start of 
our now friendship. So, Dr. Charlam, you're not an obstetrician, you're not an oncologist, you're an internal medicine doctor who specializes in breast care and breastfeeding medicine. Do you see many patients with pregnancy-associated breast cancer? Sure, and you got what I do exactly right. I take care of women with benign breast disease. I work with high-risk women, uh, women that are at risk for breast cancer, for screening and prevention. And I do breastfeeding medicine. So, yes, I do see this a lot, but we need to keep in mind that this is because this is what I do for my specialty. Pregnancy associated breast cancer is fortunately very rare. About 1 in 3,000 births is are associated with um, uh, a breast cancer diagnosis in mom, which sounds rare and it is but if you're that one you're that one and that's your everything so it's something to keep in mind davy was fortunate that her obstetrician was doing everything perfectly you know we very much want to make sure that women who find something that concerns them on their breasts during pregnancy that we work those findings up very promptly and just like we would if the woman was not pregnant at the time. So she was fortunate in that her diagnosis wasn't delayed. Does pregnancy increase a woman's risk for developing breast cancer? Well, it's an interesting thing to when we look at the science behind it. Overall, having had pregnancies in a woman's life decreases her risk of developing breast cancer in the long run. But during the time of pregnancy and the time shortly after pregnancy, you can imagine there's a lot of hormones circulating around and there actually is an increased risk during that time period, sort of like a little blip in that breast cancer risk. So it is a time we need to be mindful of any breast changes, but in the long run, having had pregnancies in a lifetime will reduce a women's breast cancer risk. You mentioned about changes to the breasts and the, the breasts change during pregnancy. So does that make it harder to recognize something that's unusual versus something that's expected? It sure does, um, especially in first time pregnancies. So women may not know what to expect. What we should expect is that the breast will grow. The woman might find they become firm later in the pregnancy. She might even find some leaking of the early milk, the colostrum, and all of those are normal changes. So is tenderness. Sometimes tenderness or pain in the breast is one of the first signs of pregnancy. What we would typically expect is that pretty much she's finding the same changes in both breasts. So something that would be a reason for concern would be if, gosh, you know what, I don't have the same kind of lumpy feeling on my left breast as I do on my right breast. Or something that develops in the pregnancy that seems odd to a woman. Women are pretty amazing when it comes to knowing their bodies, if, they're, if they listen to them and are you know, received well in the doctor's office, it's I always, always, always listen to my patients because they know their bodies. And very often a woman will come to me and say, you know what, it just doesn't seem right. And to me, that's a huge red flag of something that we should be looking into. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is your host, Amber Smith, talking with nurse practitioner Davia Moss, who was pregnant when she learned she had breast cancer, and assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology, Dr. Jane Charlam. They both work at Upstate Medical University. So I'd like to have you, Dr. Charlam, explain the differences in how breast cancer should be evaluated and treated in a woman who is not pregnant compared to one who is pregnant or lactating. What, what are the main concerns? Well, actually, that's a very easy question to answer because really it's almost identical. And that's when I'm teaching you know, young doctors and teaching medical students, what I say is when you have a woman that comes to you with a breast complaint who happens to be lactating or happens to be pregnant, you evaluate her in almost exactly the same way with the same urgency than you would that you would if she were not pregnant or lactating. So it's perfectly safe to do a mammogram, to do a sonogram, and to do a biopsy 
in a pregnant or lactating woman. There should be absolutely no delays because she is pregnant or because she is breastfeeding. And Davia, you mentioned some of what you, you had a fine needle aspiration and a biopsy. Can you tell us more about that? And, and did were you sent first for a mammogram or was it straight to the fine needle and the biopsy? I was sent from my obstetrician's office for a ultrasound. Um, and when I was there, the after a few minutes, the tech kind of got up and walked out of the room and gotten the radiologist and he came in and said, you know, I think I should come in on my day off tomorrow and do a biopsy. And he, or maybe I was in denial, but I kind of just thought he was being really kind because I was so pregnant and I was about to have a baby. So um, I actually, a mutual friend of mine had had breast cancer uh, not yet a year before me, and she is a surgical PA and happened to be in the OR with one of our local breast surgeons. So the breast surgeon sort of snuck me in that afternoon um, as a favor. So that's sort of the, the fineal aspirate maybe wouldn't have been as common, but it came back positive for malignant cells the next morning. And that was when I had to go to the um, breast center for a core biopsy. Um, which was a little complicated because I was very pregnant and normally you just lay on your back um, for this uh, procedure. So, you know, we just had to get a little creative. I'm comfortable with healthcare itself. So being in those offices, procedures didn't make me nervous um, because I've seen them and I, I know what happens. Well, this may be a question for a pathologist, but I'll, I'll ask both of you, do, does the tissue look look different because of the pregnancy? And, and does the laboratory need to know that this sample came, you know, from a woman who's in her third trimester of pregnancy? Do you know? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's always it's always important that we talk to our pathologists when we're sending them samples. But in this case, it's particularly important so that they're not surprised to see the typical lactational changes, the typical pregnancy changes in the background of the slide. So communication throughout this entire process is hugely important, as you can imagine. Um, this is not, this is fortunately not something that comes up all too often. So when it does, your our focus really is on involving a lot of specialists pretty quickly. Um, so that includes the radiologist, the pathologist, oftentimes a geneticist, in addition to obstetrical specialists, and of course, you know, a pediatrician and oncologist. There's a lot of people who have expertise and getting them together rapidly and coordinating that care and communication is something that should be really addressed early on. Well, before we get into treatment, because I want to talk about that as well, um, Davia, I'd like to ask you how you just handled all of this, because you're, you're working as a nurse practitioner, you've got two other children at home, you've got your household to run, and then on top of that, this you know, diagnosis that you weren't expecting ever, and certainly not right now. So how did you cope with all of that? Um, the, the diagnosis itself um, didn't connect um, at first. The idea of not breastfeeding was really what put me over the edge um, and sort of sent me to a dark place for those first couple days. And I like to call Dr. Charlene my um, knight in shining armor. She sort of like rode in and said, this is going to be okay. We're going to make this work. At the very least, you're going to latch your baby and we're going to get more information and we're going to go from there. And on top of that, she also called all those specialists. So I, before Dr. Charlene sort of entered the arena, I was doing all of that myself. And um, that just sort of allowed me to spend some extra days with my kids before things got a little crazy. Um, I, I was working, but actually the day I went for my biopsy was my very last day of work before maternity leave. So in that way, I was a little bit lucky because I didn't have to worry about figuring out, you know, taking time off work. So that was, you know, taken care of. Upstate's HealthLink on Air has to take a short break, but we'll be back soon with more about cancer during pregnancy.
Welcome back to HealthLink on Air. This is your host, Amber Smith, with guests Davia Moss, who's a pediatric nurse practitioner at Upstate, and Dr. Jane Charlam, an assistant professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate. Davia has shared her story about learning she had breast cancer while she was pregnant with her third child, who today is a healthy toddler. Now, breast cancer treatment typically may include surgery, chemo, and or radiation. Dr. Charlam, are those options available to women who are pregnant or lactating? Sure. You know, every case is individual, and there are many options. And when somebody is diagnosed during pregnancy or during lactation, what we need to do is take a deep breath and go through the various options and talk about risks and benefits. So we absolutely provide chemotherapy during pregnancy and during lactation. Those are options, but there's risks and benefits we need to consider. Additionally, you know, radiation is an option and surgery is an option. And we try to time things during pregnancy. There are times that it's safer to do surgery in the second or third trimester rather than early on. But we always need to weigh the risks and benefits depending on what the diagnosis is and what's, what else is going on in that patient's life. How does pregnancy affect survival rates for breast cancer? So it's interesting and it's something we've looked at. And of course, you know, immediately when this diagnosis occurs, you know, there's always this, oh my goodness, and it's also I'm pregnant and how, you know, that's a big concern. What we're seeing, though, is it really probably doesn't have a huge impact. Um, a lot of times women ask, should I terminate the pregnancy? And that's a very personal decision, but we don't have evidence that that's beneficial as far as her long-term outcome, as far as her prognosis. So that may be something she chooses to do for personal reasons, because my goodness, it's a lot of stress and a lot of life change. However, we don't have evidence at this point that being pregnant at the time of diagnosis and going forward significantly impacts a woman's long-term prognosis. Is the baby that's developing in the uterus at risk for being born with cancer? No, absolutely not. And that's a common myth out there. And I can see why people are concerned about that, but no, we're not concerned about the, the fetus developing a malignancy because of mom uh, having that diagnosis. We do, of course, have to be very careful to weigh the risks and benefits of exposing that fetus um, during pregnancy and exposing an infant through breastfeeding to the medications and the treatments mom might be getting. So Davia, can you tell us what did your treatment consist of? Um, after we received our pathology, we found that uh, my breast cancer was hormone receptive, meaning it feeds off estrogen and progesterone. Um, mine fed off estrogen more so than progesterone. And it was HER2 negative, which is another protein we use to um, identify what type of cancer you have. I had something called lymphatic invasion. So that in itself meant that I would need chemotherapy first. Um, that's called neoadjuvant chemo and followed by a either mastectomy or a lumpectomy. Uh, I did find through genetic testing that I carry the BRCA2 mutation. So I was going to eventually need a bilateral mastectomy. When you said lymphatic invasion, does that translate to an aggressive kind of breast cancer? It can. That talks about the degree to which it's spreading in the body. But unfortunately, we did note from other things that we can see and test on the pathology that Davia's cancer was an aggressive form. So all of that together indicated that she would benefit from having chemotherapy. It sounds like it's something that needed to be dealt with like immediately. It's not something you could just put off until it was convenient, right? Yes, <laughs> I was sent. So I also was sent to a larger institution for a second opinion, just because breast cancer in pregnancy is somewhat rare. Um, so I was sent somewhere else where they have seen it more often. Um, and I had to travel to another city when my newborn was 10 days old, um, which luckily this was before COVID. So it was a little less complicated than it would be right now. 
but um, yeah, there was a lot. I had a port, I had to have surgery to have my port placed when my son, Dr. Shalom, remind me, was he two weeks old, two or three weeks old? There. And then chemo started within days after. But I'm still amazed that, is it the uh, placenta that protects the baby from all that's going on with the cancer and potentially the treatment? I mean, it sounds like you didn't have to have chemo, but I mean, some women might have to have some of this done, you know, because it happened earlier in their pregnancy. But so it's the placenta that keeps protection, but from the baby, so it's not affected by this. Is that right? So that's, that's a protection. The infant, if we did do chemo during pregnancy, which we do perform when it's indicated, um, we try to time it so that it's not during the first trimester when there's the main development of organs. Um, so we avoid that if we possibly can, but later on in the pregnancy, yeah, the placenta is an incredible organ that does protect the infant, but the infant would be exposed to some of the drugs. Interestingly, though, there, with all the research we have, there is no indication that infants are exposed to really significant harms in terms of long-term development, which is a wonderful thing, I think, for a, a mother to hear. We do need to keep in mind, though, that this is a mom that's potentially going to be quite feeling ill and that there's risks of delivering early and risks there are. And I don't want to say there's no risk to the infant. So it's something that we monitor and we weigh the risks and benefits. Um, but overall, remarkably, we see that children that have been exposed to chemotherapy during the mom's pregnancy do well. Now, what about during lactation? Can breast cancer cells be passed to the baby through the breast milk? If they are, they're not meaningfully passed. You know, it, what we see, you don't, you can't catch breast cancer. Okay, so it's not something that we worry. And there is absolutely no question that the benefits of breastfeeding would outweigh any risk that that would occur. That's just not something that we have ever seen. So, you know, the infant is going to be exposed to white blood cells and to antibodies that are going to be highly protective. And additionally, of course, the, you know, breastfeeding itself the, with having an infant at the breast with mom, we're thinking is very important, not only for the infant's development, but for the relationship between that mom and that baby. So if you're looking at this situation where mom is under a huge amount of stress, mom has been robbed of what she anticipate, anticipated to be a very normal, you know, wonderful, positive time in her life, to be able to offer to a mom and that family some degree of normalcy in terms of feeding that infant, I think is something that is absolutely should be offered if it is, you know, a potential um, opportunity for that mom. Now, that said, I don't think it's something that every mom, nor even most moms would want to do. It's a lot of work. Um, it takes a dedicated mom. It takes a very flexible baby. Davia was sort of set up to succeed. Um, she was an experienced breastfeeding mom. She'd done this before. It was something that was highly important to her and I'll let her speak to that. Um, and fortunately, this baby is the most flexible baby I've met. <laughs> so that, that was very helpful. So she had everything going for her. Um, so I don't think we're saying that this is something that's right for everyone or that any patient should ever feel pressured to breastfeed. But I believe every mom should be offered the opportunity to at least talk about the risks and benefits. And Davia, this was very important to you and you've uh, breastfed your previous two children. How was this different? Was it more challenging in some ways? Um, so I, I think the, I sort of describe it as a traumatic experience for me. And that really went back to a lot of my providers not engaging in a conversation with me about what was important to me at the time how this diagnosis was impacting my life in that moment. So in the grand scheme to me, um, it was not difficult. Um, it did take up some time, 
but it was, I always told Dr. Charlene that I just pictured pouring cancer cells <laughs> and my negative energy into all the extra milk I was pumping for those first few weeks before I got chemo and um, just kind of clinging to those moments that I did get to nurse him. Now, Dr. Charlene, I've read that breastfeeding can help lower a woman's breast cancer risk. Um, but I wonder, does breastfeeding have any effect on cancer once it's developed? You're absolutely right that women who breastfeed their infants are less likely to get a breast cancer in their lifetime than women who don't. Um, what's interesting is there seems to be a connection uh, potentially because not breastfeeding really is going to increase your risk. And especially in a mom potentially who goes through a pregnancy and has her breasts, and as Davia said, your milk's going to come in no matter what and have that milk stay there and cause engorgement. So we're seeing scientific reasons why that may be. So the worry though that you ask that goodness by breastfeeding, am I going to increase the baby's risk? Am I going to increase my risk? No, we haven't seen that all. Um, that at all. There really isn't a lot of research on this because most women diagnosed do not go on to breastfeed. It takes a lot. I think Davia really was a hero in what she was doing <laughs> and what she was able to do. And again, many moms wouldn't have the the knowledge to do that and wouldn't have the support to do that. So there aren't enough moms, I think, at this point to go through and prove definitively that this is not a risky thing for outcomes, but we see no evidence. And really, I can't imagine why it would impact it negatively. So it's not something that I really am concerned about. Well, Davia, you mentioned genetic testing. And so I wanted to ask you about your breast cancer risk. Did you find that you have a higher than average risk for breast cancer? Yes, um, Dr. Charlam will be able to rattle the statistics off better than I am, but I am at higher risk for a number of malignancies. Um, breast and ovarian are the highest. Well, let me ask you, what advice would you give to someone who's pregnant and then learns they have breast cancer? Oh, boy. Um, I, I would start with there's actually through social media, I met a wonderful group. It's a small group of women that were all diagnosed with some type of cancer in pregnancy. And they were sort of my lifeline of it's okay to have all of these feelings right now. Just let's just hunker down and focus. The treatment time was the easiest time overall. In the beginning, diagnosis was uh, and how it was going to impact our life was pretty devastating in a lot of ways. And then treatment ends and a lot of your providers, you know, kind of wave goodbye and send you out there into the world while you are still carrying kind of a heavy load. Well, Dr. Charlam, I know you said earlier one in 3000, and this is really rare. You know, there's, there's not a lot of women that will deal with this, but pregnant women, especially first time pregnant women tend to worry about a lot of things. So how concerned should any woman be if she's pregnant about her risk for breast cancer? I don't think she needs to be any more concerned than she would otherwise be. What I wouldn't want to happen, though, is if a woman finds something on her breast to say, oh, let me just dismiss this because I, it's rare. Let me just dismiss this because it has to do with the pregnancy. If something, if she feels something or sees something that she thinks is odd or unusual, I would strongly encourage a woman to bring it to the attention of her obstetrical provider. I, wouldn't want to see her downplay the risk. But that said, no, I don't think this is something that a typical average woman during pregnancy needs to add to her stress about. <laughs> I want to thank both of you for making time to share this really important and personal story. My guests have been pediatric nurse practitioner Davia Moss, along with her physician, Dr. Jane Charlam, who's an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology, specializing in breastfeeding medicine. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. A.R. Beckenstein attends Wesleyan University in Connecticut. Her poem, This Life Sentence Is Not a Death Sentence, gently but firmly seeks to persuade her listener that there is reason to keep going. I know some days you play with pills and fiddle with razor blades, calculating the LD50 of your antidepressants and writing suicide notes in the margins of your geography notes. I know some days you pray that gravity fails, liberating you from the shackles of existing on this spinning water rock. But you see, death is not a hobby. Dying is not an option. And this isn't even a multiple choice question. This is a confirmation, a continuance, a cultivation. If your life is anything, it is a wild flower, somehow growing in a tiny and unexpected crevice of the universe, hidden amongst the weeds, looking. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, an update on concussion care. To hear more consumer health podcasts, visit our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on Air is produced by Jim Howe with sound engineering by Stephen Shaw. This is your host, Amber Smith thanking you for listening.